You must be at least 18 years of age to listen to the following podcast. Hi, I'm Robert Black for Sexual Heroes, and I have interviewed musicians and singers and artists, therapists, psychologists, sexologists, um, of course, triple X entertainers. So a lot of different people. I never thought that I would be interviewing a publicist from Hollywood, but uh, here today is Howard Bragman, and he is known as one of the biggest, if not the biggest, PR guy in Hollywood. So why is Howard here today? Because Howard is known as, well, I'm going to read a, a little bit from this 2011 NPR article. Today, Bragman has made a name for himself in Hollywood as the go-to publicist for helping celebrities come out of the closet. They call him the gay guru. They wrote, Bragman says he sees his work as a way to create the role models he never had growing up. And then quoted Howard as saying, these people are heroes because coming out is the single most important act any gay person can do. Because every bit of research that's ever been done says, if you know more gay and lesbian people, you are going to support our rights. True. So that was in 2011. Does that still resonate with you today, Howard? Yes and no. It resonates that coming out is still an important act, but it's it's kind of, I don't really take people out of the closet, quote unquote, the way I used to. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that big a deal anymore. There's a lot more people out in, in all aspects of life than there were even 10 or 12 years ago. Uh-huh. So that news is good. Yeah. I think that news is good. So, and, and, and it has become that way probably because of a lot of the work that you've done. Well, I hope I made a contribution along the way. I like to think of myself as the midwife. All right. Well, we'll, we'll explore this a little bit. A, a lot of your career has been about coming out, helping people come out in Hollywood, celebrities. It has, but a lot of it, that's kind of what the mainstream media latched on to, okay? That I was this coming out guru. But so much of it was much more, uh, much more sexual than that, was much different than that, was much earlier than that. And it was one reason you and I talked was because I don't want this to go by the wayside. I'm not a young man. I want this part of my career to be, God forbid the word, memorialized, if you will, to to be remembered because it's something I'm pretty proud of. Well, yeah. Before we talk about the career itself, a lot of this does have to do with sexuality and coming out and, and being who you are. So first, I just, I want to hear a little bit about your own coming out, your mm-hmm. kind of origin story as a gay man. And I want to share a little bit about my own too, because I want to, I want to compare our stories. Okay. So share with us your own coming out story. 
Okay. Um, like you, I'm a nice Jewish boy. Boy, yeah, I love when people are in, I don't wear Abercrombie shirts. Okay, let's start <laughs> there. Um, I um, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. I went to Huber School with Sandra Bernhardt. <laughs> there you go. Okay, until her family moved to Arizona. I think she was eight or nine. And, you know, I always say I was a Martian. I was fat, Jewish, and gay growing up. And I felt like the ultimate outsider. It, it was a... It was a hard thing to do, but I had a very loving family. I knew I was gay from a, a very early age. And I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, it was over a decade ago, a photographer named Robert Trachtenberg wrote a book called When I Knew with about 100 well-known members of the LGBTQ community talking about their coming out. Me to have a picture and a little thing about when I knew. And mine was at my bar mitzvah. And I said, I knew I was gay because my favorite part of my bar mitzvah was working with the party planner. <laughs> and it was a picture of me next to this huge smoke fish in a Madden temple in Flint, Michigan. There's this huge smoke fish, the kind with the head, the teeth, covered in cream cheese. <laughs> and it said, Howard's bar mitzvah spell out in pimentos. So I had impeccable taste back then, wow. too, obviously. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty clear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I went to the University of Michigan. I proceeded to fall in love with a straight guy. None did your parents? No. Not then. No. Not then. And I was always fairly obese growing up, fairly fat. I went to Michigan, and then I was like, oh, shit, I'm in love with the wrong person. I got to deal with this. And I went to health service. And the University of Michigan, much to their credit, I went to the resident advisor in my dorm and I was referred to health service and they worked with something called the Spectrum Center. The University of Michigan was the first university, as, as far as I know, in the country with a gay and lesbian center. And this was about 1975. And they hooked me up with a therapist went in and I said, I, I think I'm gay. I want to change. And much to their credit in 1975, in the middle of the Midwest, they didn't say, yeah, we're going to help you change. They said, let's not so fast. Let's, let's follow this road and let's not, let's not try and change you. Let's just see where we're at. And I took this journey and I ended up much more comfortable in my own skin. I started, I wouldn't say dating, but having interactions with people and a few close friends knew I was gay when I was in college. And I told my parents after, after I was graduating and living on my own, I kind of wanted to be independent when I did that. I had, and what was the reaction? It was pretty extraordinary. And I graduated in 78. And I was home for the weekend. I moved to Chicago after college. And I came home for the weekend. It was my parents and I. And it was probably a Friday night after dinner. We sat down in the family room with the burnt, burnt orange carpet, shank <laughs> carpet. I remember those. Yeah. I said, I'm gay. My mother started crying. And I said, don't cry. I'm happy. I have friends. I have a good life. And 
My mother said something pretty extraordinary. She said, I'm crying for all the pain you had growing up that I couldn't help you with. And I don't think anybody could have asked for a more extraordinary reaction from from a parent than that. And my father took slightly longer, but he was on board very, very quickly. And my mother was a Leo, and she was a badass. And my mother, my parents lived in Florida for about the last third of their lives. My mother would wear an AIDS ribbon, and if one of their, they were out to dinner and somebody made a gay joke, she would rip their balls off, say, I have a gay son, I don't find that amusing at all. If somebody had a gay child, they would call her up and go, Myrna, can we go to lunch? And she would counsel them informally. She'd tell me about it. She goes, I don't know what's wrong with these people. These are their children. You have to love your children. That's your job. You have children. You have to love them. I, I realize how different that is from so many, many people. And it gave me such strength, such inner strength to know that that support system was there. And that's your coming out story. Well, with my parents, I mean, you know, one never comes out once in luck. Believe me. Very good point. <laughs> you know, you come out to different relatives, friends, etc. But that was my my parental coming out story. Well, you described your mom as being extraordinary, or her reaction being extraordinary. So I, I, I would agree with that. I can I tell you a little bit about my sure. <laughs> I came out to my parents at 15 and had known or known for years already at that point that I was gay. And I read a couple of books. I read The Front Runner and I read Consenting Adult, which I think was written in the 60s about a boy coming out to his mother. And... So I got a little babysitting job at the house behind us. And I left the book Consenting Adult on my bed with a note. And I called my parents from my babysitting gig. And they didn't know where I was. And told them to go look on my bed. And I could see from the house behind them the when the light went on in my bedroom and i knew at that moment there was no turning back and so they they saw the book and i called them and it was emotional but one of the first things my mother said to me was i wished you had cancer instead of this Sorry. it's okay uh, so that had a profound impact on me. And I never had a good relationship with my parents anyway. And that was probably like a nail in the coffin at 15. So I'm blessed that I wasn't kicked out of the house because I know a lot of kids were. But um, as soon as I could at 17, I, I left home. I didn't wait till 18. And, you know, and that, that definitely impacted the course of my life. So those are those are the coming out stories. Obviously, very different. You also help people in crisis situations where where information has been made public that 
they weren't ready to make public or had no intention of making public. Right. And so I I do have a little bit of experience on on that as well because when I got involved with my porn career, my father was running for a political office and somebody sent a link to my triple X website to a number of different political groups in the area and he ended up resigning because of that from the from the election. And then in the early 2000s, I started selling real estate and somebody sent a link, an email to all of my coworkers at the real estate agency with a link to my porn past pictures, the whole bit and dropped off flyers to all of my neighbors in my condo complex with information about my, my triple X uh, world and it made my life a living hell there. So, so when I read stories about you helping people in situations where they've been outed, I, I can, I mean, I'm not a big celebrity, but for me, just making things, my sexuality, putting it out there to people when I have no, when it's not in my control was extremely upsetting to say the least it was it was a very very stressful time dealing with that i have a lot of empathy for them where your story so different where does all that empathy come from for you to help people deal with crises like that well again as as a fat jewish gay kid in flint michigan there's a lot of empathy that goes on with that i wasn't the I was the last one chosen in sports. Uh-huh. I was I had a lot of body shame issues. I mean, there were a lot of different places where my empathy came from. Uh, you know, I I wasn't always a hot daddy, okay? <laughs> He's a hot dad. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, it, it just, it, it was just something that I had a lot of pain in my life. I remember... I graduated college and I traveled around the country trying to decide where I was going to live. And I was going to be an advertising copywriter and I was staying with my aunt in New York and I was walking up Broadway to her apartment and it was probably May. It was in the evening and it was drizzling and I had left another interview and they said, oh yeah, you seem like a bright guy. We'll let you know. And I was like walking up and I was crying. Well, Pisces would cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was crying and I thought, well, this is, this sucks. I said, you know, maybe I should give up this dream and just, I had a journalism and psychology degree. I said, maybe I should just go study more and be a therapist and just help people. Just really go into the ground level helping people. And what I didn't realize at the time was, could do both. I could do something in marketing and help people at the same time. So there's always been something in here that wanted to help people. You know, you talk about publicity and the morning we're taping this. We don't know when people will see this. It might be five years from now. Mm-hmm. But the morning we're taping this, the Academy Award nominations came out in Hollywood. Okay. I've been there. 
I've been there when my clients have been nominated for Academy Awards, and it's great, and you go to parties and you write speeches. But to be there on somebody's worst day in their life, that's like the ultimate honor. You know, not, not when they're getting their Academy Award, but when the world is crashing in on somebody and they see no way out. When Meredith Baxter calls me from Family Ties and says, hey, listen, I need to talk to you. Everybody said to talk to you because I'm a lesbian and one of the tabloids is out to out me and I don't know what in the hell to do. Can you help me? That to me, to be able to help somebody, and I'll never forget the night before and the morning after and the weight that was lifted off of her shoulders and the power that went to her, and that's truly a gift. I help people find what's in themselves, the power that they have in themselves, because particularly when when you're threatened and the tabloid says, hey, we're going to run this story. Do you have a comment? And you have 48 hours to come up with a comment. Your mind can't think correctly. You know, you know, you've been there. You, you just can't think correctly. And I just have this gift for thinking really clearly in crisis situations. And I can get to the essence of what we need to do. And see a path forward for people. Wonderful. I, I feel very blessed. I mean, I really do. You wanted to go into advertising. Mm-hmm. You ended up working at... So I moved to Chicago. I wanted to go into advertising. I got to tell you a quick aside that's funny. Yeah. I moved to Chicago in November of 78. After I traveled the country, I decided Chicago was the city I was going to move to. November, December, nobody hires in advertising because everybody's waiting for their bonuses. I lived kind of near north, and there was a little bookstore in my neighborhood, and they were looking for a clerk. I like reading books. So I went in and I got a job there, and after a couple months, they made me manager. I'm like, I don't know. Fine. I wasn't thinking. They offered me more money. So I said, sure, I'll take it. Steve Martin had a book come out called Cruel Shoes. Again, this was 1979. I had a friend who had a florist shop around the corner. And I said, oh, we got whoever ordered these books or hundreds of them. I got this book. So we created this window. We took black plastic, lined the whole window of the store, took a stack of the, took a poster, hung it, put a spotlight on it, put the books, and then we put a pedestal on there. And he had a pair of these silver metallic platform shoes. Okay. And we put a whip across it as it was called Cruel Shoes. Mm hmm. And then a stack of the books. And I was like, oh, fuck, I am proud of this. This is good. We're both like, job well done, dude. Yeah. High five. Yeah. Good, good job. Good job. And then um, 
it so happened that the the bookstore was owned by this magazine and paperback distri- distribution company. And the president of the company, it was off of Rush Street in Chicago and a lot of nice restaurants. And the president was going to dinner with his wife and some friends. And he's like, and then we own this bookstore. Oh. And he and his wife and some friends were walking down. And uh, that Monday, my boss calls me in the regional manager and that was my last day of work and it was like he was like yes we don't exactly run an S&M bookstore here and uh, this is not your future and you're an incredibly creative guy and maybe you should go into something more suited for you rather than running a bookstore but I kind of love that story. He did, he did you a favor. Oh, he did me a great favor. And then I got a job with this magazine called Chicago Elite Magazine. And it was up in Rogers Park, which ironically is the most unelite part of Chicago. And it was even less elite then. It was the publisher, his wife, and I was the associate editor. And the three of us put together this whole magazine. And actually, he had gun magazines that went to gun dealers, but his wife was tired of these gun parties. She said, I want, Andrew, I want to go to better class of parties. So they put out Chicago Elite magazine. Well, after a year, the magazine was going down the crap early. He called me and he says, Howard, we're very fond of you, but we're closing the magazine. What do you want to do? And I said, we're going to go into PR. I said, no, I don't. These PR people who approach me are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They don't read the magazine. They don't know how to pitch a story. And I found a job at a small PR firm owned by two gay guys, uh, ironically. And honestly, from the first week of PR, I had found my dream job, which is another one of those miracles. You know, the Yiddish word, Besherit. It was like, oh my God, it took all these skill sets I have, communication and triage, if you will, and trying to, you know, charm people and talk on that, you know, all these skill sets I had. And I loved it. From the first week I had found my home. After after a few months of being there, we got the Budweiser account, Anheuser-Busch, for the entire Midwest. I was doing some stuff on it, and there was a woman who was running it. Mind you, I had been in PR six months, and she kept blowing things, and the client didn't like her, and they said, you seem pretty good, Bragman. It's your client. I'm like, okay. I ran that piece of business for three years, pretty much by myself with an assistant, in 10 different states, we reported to a big agency, their main agency, and it was like getting an MBA in PR. It was like the best education a guy could ever hope for. Um, and then I was like, okay, I've been to the Rice Lake Snowmobile races sponsored by Budweiser for three years. It's 26 fucking degrees below zero. And I went to a bigger agency at the time. Was It's called Burson Marsteller. or still exists. It was the biggest PR firm in the world in their Chicago office. I went to work for them. And I was working there about uh, three years. 
started about 1983 there. One November day in 1986, a friend of mine from the Chicago office had moved to L.A. to run the L.A. office, and he called me up, and he goes, hey, you want to come to L.A.? And I was 30 years old, and I go, yeah. November in Chicago? November in Chicago, if you've never been there, they put the ropes across the Chicago River because otherwise you get blown in the river. Oh, we know. When you cross the river. And I had a partner at the time who was from California and went, went to California. And I love California and I love the agency, but not their LA office so much. And I moved in 86 and in 1989, I kind of got my act together. We had bought a little house and I had an extra bedroom and I got it ready and I gave my notice and I started my own PR firm. And I, my first client was a young man named Joe Steffen. Friend of mine was in the board of Lambda Legal Defense Fund. And he said, listen, we're working with this young man, Joe Steffen. He's been kicked out of the Naval Academy because he's gay. We need some PR help with this. We have a great attorney helping on this case. We need PR help. Would you be willing to do it? I had literally no other clients at the time. I said, sure, I will. And so that was my first client. It was a pro bono client. Uh, and then I went and signed. My next client was LA Gear, which was literally the fastest growing company on the New York Stock Exchange. And then I signed Christie's Auction House, the, the, the most venerable auction house in the world. After a year, we added an entertainment division. I added some partners and we grew to the biggest entertainment PR firm in the world uh, within 10 years. But I continued to do things in the LGBTQI community, which we certainly didn't call that then. Right. Kind of like people, either people didn't know or they just didn't pay attention. And I remember when I was at Burson Marsteller, the big firm, and people weren't really out. And I was out. I want to make a point. The first bookstore job I worked at, obviously with the two gay guys I worked for in Burson Marsteller in Chicago, I was out. I was never in the closet professionally on any job I ever had. And you're talking in the 70s, early 80s. That's big. That was a pretty big thing back then. And I had a friend who worked in the New York office and I was in New York on business. We went to lunch and I said, you know, I have this dream, John. He said, what's that? And I said, I want to have my own PR firm one day and I want to do regular clients, but I also want to be able to do gay stuff too. And he's like, yeah, right. Like that could ever happen. And your friend had just told you that you could not have a firm where you would have gay clients and mainstream clients. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction to that? I didn't get angry or anything. I just kind of took it in and went back to my, you know, absorbed it. But when I started my firm, I took my first client, which was the pro bono client. I signed regular clients and I never went back to him and said, I told you so. I just kind of lived my life. Somebody had to be first, didn't they? <laughs> Somebody. So what, what was it that made him so doubtful why why couldn't that be at that time in 
because it was the early 80s. It was a different time. We didn't talk about gay things. You didn't see gay people on TV. It was just a different time. And it was almost impossible to imagine, number one, people being out of the closet, number one. Number two, that you could that you could represent a kid who was kicked out of the Naval Academy for being gay and Coca-Cola at the same time. Because because the bigger mainstream clients would not want to be associated. Sure, of course, of course. You know, they, they, they just, oh my God. You know, that was before all the big companies started marketing to the, the gay community. So, yeah. Um, and I took it in, but I... I was never the guy who joined a fraternity in college. I was a guy who found my own pathway. But when you're a Jew from the, from Flint, Michigan, you find your own path anyway. I wasn't a New York, you know what I mean? I was always kind of independent. And I always found my own way as opposed to even as a kid. My brother was older. My parents would go play golf. And I was left to my own devices a lot. So... I lived a lot of my life in my head and in my brain. And I figured stuff out on my own. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But when it didn't, you'd learn a lesson. And when it did, say, okay, I can do that. Let's go on. But way back then, that was in 83, when you had that idea of having this PR frame with, with both types of clients, were you thinking about in 83 thinking about helping people come out no well god no i didn't know i didn't know which shape it would take yeah but i just knew that i never wanted to live in the closet right and one reason people didn't assume i was gay uh and i would like almost go out of my way to tell people i was gay or if they'd ask about my wife i'd say oh no i have a partner i'm gay or I have a lover. Lover was the term we used back then. People always thought I was gay. Oh, okay, so so we have some differences, okay? But people didn't, and I would correct them. And uh, that was just me. That's how I wanted to do it. It's 1989. I start my firm. 1990, 91, we start to build an entertainment division. Pete Wilson's the governor of California. And Pete Wilson promises to support some, he's a Republican, but he promised to support some positive legislation for the LBGT uh, community. And he did. He went back on his word and we were marching in the streets. Okay. And it was in the fall and National Coming Out Day comes up. And the head of PR for the Gay and Lesbian Center in Los Angeles calls me. I said, listen, will you do me a big favor? I said, sure. What's that? And he said, I'm going up to Sacramento to lead a march up there. And he said, I have two celebrities coming out for National Coming Out Day. This is 1991. Would you be able to handle that for me? Because I'm not going to be around. I said, sure. And it was Dick Sargent, who was the second Darren Unbewitched. And it was a woman named Sheila Kuehl, who was on a show called, I believe it was The Loves and Lives of Dobie Gillis, which unless you're of a certain age, you don't know the show, but it was a pretty seminal show mm -hmm. at the time. It had um, Bob Denver, who was Gilligan, 
Um, Warren Beatty was in the show. Wow. And Shua Kewell was always this. She played Zelda, this kind of butch little character. So I put him in People magazine. I put him on Entertainment Tonight. The reaction was pretty extraordinary, and particularly to Dick Sargent, because Bewitched was as iconic a TV show as you could imagine. We created the label Retroactive Role Model. Dick was Dick and Elizabeth Montgomery, who was on Bewitched with him, and she had become a friend. I knew her manager very well. They became the Grand Marshals the next year of the Gay Pride Parade in Los Angeles. I felt like, wow, we really made a difference. She was an ally. Oh, she was an extraordinary ally. One of the one of the most fun ladies. Well, you want to have a drink with her. She was great. <laughs> then I get a call one day, and I mean, I'm telling you, nobody was doing what I was doing then, right? And I was doing some PR for some ain't benefits. It was, you know, the early days and nobody was doing that back then. And I get a call one day, Mr. Bragman, yes. Do you believe in the First Amendment? I said, I love the First Amendment. Would you be my, with my partners and I? And I said, sure, I would. So my business partner and I drive out to the deep West Valley to Chatsworth, California. And we meet with a bunch of pornographers. And I think Bush one had started the Meese Commission with Edward Meese as attorney general. And the goal of the Meese Commission was to squash pornography. And so the pornographers were getting together and they created something called the Free Speech Legal Defense Fund. Their goal was to push the First Amendment to make sure that they had the rights their right to put adult entertainment out there. They thought I'd be ruined. It was like all my Jewish uncles. Most of them were Jewish. <laughs> and it was like the nicest, warmest group of people. I'll never forget one of them, Al, said to me, I said, Al, how'd you get in this business? He goes, and, and a lot of them were from Ohio, from Cleveland, which is where the porn industry started. And he said, well... I was working at Higby's department store, and my father-in-law said, Al, you're not able to do a, provide a good enough living for my daughter-in-law, and you got you to gotta join my business over here. And he goes, and you know, Howard, last year I won Best Anal Theme Feature for Splendor in the Ass. Oh. So it just shows how far you can go if you put your mind to it. Good to know. <laughs> you know, again, we were signing mainstream clients. We had, you know, big celebrities and they were winning Academy Awards. And I had and the pornographers, <laughs> you know, and we got my business partner and I, and we had a freelancer. We got every Wednesday night and meet with the pornographers. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, you probably do because we're of similar ages. I came up with this idea. Everybody hates me for it because you had to run through it at the beginning. But the beginning of a part before you could watch the porn, now it's when they were on video. We would have some 
hot chick and some torn camouflage going, your rights are being threatened. I don't know if you ever remember that little video that ran. No. Support the free speech legal defense fund. And we trained uh, adult entertainers and we put them on tours and we put them in radio stations and we really pushed the First Amendment and did that for a number of years. And I, I know a lot of people in adult entertainment through the years. I've worked with Playboy. I've worked with Larry Flint, was a very, very dear friend of mine. Um, my friend Ron owns the biggest dildo company in the world. Um, you know, I've had I've had fun through the years, and all the while, while the regular stuff was going on. There's been a war on pornography for decades, yeah. and it continues today. Yeah, but good luck. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you watch pornography, if you like pornography, this gentleman here had something to do with you being able to watch your porn. You know what? I just, I do, you know, the first question was, do you believe in the First Amendment? And the answer is yes. And what I learned very early on about the First Amendment is namby-pamby speech doesn't need to be protected. It's the speech you may not agree with that needs to be protected. And that's the simplest way to put this concept. And Larry Flint, to me, was a hero. He was a man who almost gave his life, but certainly gave his limbs. He became a, a, a paraplegic. He was in a wheelchair for decades because somebody shot him for his beliefs. I, I mean, you talk about somebody with a big pair of balls. Those are, those are the types of people that I truly respected and I was willing to stand by their side. And people say, ask me all the time, did you lose business? Probably, probably, probably there were whisper campaigns and they did, but fuck them, I did fine. You know, and if people didn't want me because I was gay or because I represented these other things, then I probably didn't want them either. Exactly. Yeah. You know, then I got the people that I should have. You know, the agency got the people I should have. And what I represented, my friend Ron has his dildo, I'll call the novelty company. And we used to have a, a closet, the office full of sex toys. And the celebrities would come in. I go and I give them a bag and I go, oh, go in there, take whatever you want. <laughs> and they were, they'd have a good time and they'd come out. I didn't say, would you take, let me... Just have fun. Did you bring me something like that today? I'm sure I can. I, oh. When you come to LA, I'll take you to the factory. It is oh. the, it is, um, it's one of the most surrealistic places with little ladies painting big veins on oh. penises <laughs> and putting fake hair on things, and you know they pull the penises out of molds and put them to cool in the water. I'd call it candle making in Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> so that's what they were making. That's what they were making. Don't like that wick. But yeah, but I, I mean, I've had fun. Okay. You know, I, one thing I've always tried to do in my career was keep it interesting and amusing for me and to, you know, keep it fun. Is there ever a time or was there ever a time when you actually 
felt that somebody would be better off with not coming out or yes there were a couple people who hadn't told their families hadn't told their employers talked to me about it and i said and they weren't being threatened by the tabloids or thing and i said you've got to do the groundwork first mm-hmm. you know let's talk after you've done a b and c um so yeah yeah but what i learned about helping people come out of the closet and not taking taken actors i took don lemon from cnn out of the closet sam champion from abc um professional athletes michael sam the nfl prospect every story is different there's not a there's not a blueprint here's how you take somebody out you find out what their story is you come up with a strategy that's authentic to them. And for me, that's what made it work. But after taking Dick Sargent out and Sheila Kuehl, I became known as that guy. And then a couple other people came to me and I was the coming out guru. And so I did that on, you know, probably 20 some different people over the years. Has anybody ever regretted it? Yes, I think there's one person, and that was Cheryl Swoops was probably the best player in the WNBA. And she had just got MVP in the WNBA. And she signed a deal with Olivia, a lesbian cruise line. So I was taking her out. She had a partner at the time. I wouldn't say she regretted it, but she said to me, I got a question for you. I said, yeah. And she said, they're going to ask me, if being gay is a choice, she said, I know that they want me to say, the community wants me to say, no, it's not a choice that you're born that way. I said, yeah. She said, for me, it's a choice. I was with men before. I've been with women. I've been with men. For me, it's a choice. How should I answer it? And I said, Cheryl, if coming out is about anything, it's about living your truth. I think you should tell your truth. She said, well, we're going to take shit from the community. I said, yeah, I take shit from all sorts of people all the time. Live your truth. And she told her truth. And indeed, we both took some shit from the community. But she's now with a man and has a family. I'm kind of okay with that decision because it was her truth. Well, yeah. You know, and you know, you know our community. You do something that's not PC and y'all. You live to regret about it. Well, and you and you you just you you don't know. You're not living somebody else's life. Only you right. know how you feel. And that was how she felt. That's it. And she told me how she felt. Now I'm not going to tell somebody to lie. <laughs> right. Um, One thing that was also amazing was like at the time this was going on, our community was exploding in terms of visibility, in terms of gay rights, in in terms of all these other issues. And I was part of a group called Angle in LA, which was a, a gay political group that raised money for politicians. And we met with Bill Clinton and I talked to him about gays in the military and why it was so unfair, how they would let people serve. And after they were done serving, and risking their lives, they would kick them out for being gay. Hey, she remember the 
famous Woody Allen movie, Zelik, who was the guy who was kind of at every famous moment in history. I felt like that for the gay movement. I was at such a fortuitous time in our movement. And it was just pure dumb luck that I happened to be there at those times when we got the visibility, marriage equality, and NFL player, all these different things. Uh, but it was just extraordinary for me as I look back. I couldn't have picked a better time, but I didn't pick the time. It picked me, if you will. I'm so grateful for that. You mentioned visibility, and we talked about it earlier. Earlier, that really is the a, a huge key in moving forward over the decades. Yeah, that's again as I as I you opened with. The more we stand up and say we want our place at the table, we want to be counted. That we insist on being counted, the more people are going to count on us. And the more we see each other, the more we come out and we are more visible. And and obviously, uh, when AIDS and HIV happened, other people weren't helping us particularly at first. We were we had to help ourselves because there was nobody else standing in line to say we're going to raise money for you and we're going to help you do it. It didn't work that way. We had a president Reagan who wouldn't talk about it. So we had to help ourselves and we got to organize and that served us very well when it came to things like marriage equality, et cetera. Yeah. When I was looking over the list of people that you have helped over the years, one of them was Chaz Bono. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that time when Chaz, well, first came out as lesbian, then came out as transgender. So came out twice, basically. And then I was thinking, I was comparing that to Elliot Page more recently. And the reaction to Elliot Page seen, you know, was, it, it's almost like it, this, you know, this much of the reaction that, that it was when Chaz came out as transgender. It was huge. And when Chaz, Chaz called me up and said, can you have lunch or coffee? And Chaz and I have been friends for a long time. And, and Chaz said, I'm transitioning and I'd like you to help me. Chaz invited me to his birthday party. And Cher was there. And Cher took me aside. Said, I'm not happy about this. I think you're getting too much attention. And I said, no disrespect, Cher, but this is going to get attention regardless of what we do. My job is to make sure we get the right attention and with the right people and we control these stories and tell the story as best we can. And Chaz did the most mainstream things you could imagine. I dancing with the stars. <laughs> I mean, you know, did and Chaz was a real pioneer and a real hero. And we shot a film that uh, went on the Oprah Winfrey Network. You know, becoming Chaz. I was a beautiful film. I'll never forget, 
Chaz used to have this legendary publicist, Liz Rosenberg, who was Cher's publicist and Madonna's publicist, and she was tough. But Liz and I were friends, and Cher and Liz showed up to Dancing with the Stars to support Chaz the first night. And Liz and I gave each other hugs and kisses, and I said, here, honey, here's your pair of tickets for you and you and uh, share. And she gives them back to me and she said, no. She said, you're uh, you're sitting next to share. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I don't know if it's an apology or what, but share said she wants to sit next to you. <laughs> so I was next to share in the audience and believe me, we got a lot of panning that night. <laughs> so that was my, that was my, I guess, I guess you had a point, Howard. That was nice. It was nice. And I'm proud of the work I did with Chaz and I'm exquisitely proud of Chaz and I'm very proud of Cher the way she stood by her son. So comparing that whole era to Elliot Page now coming out, are you, what's your reaction to, to the reaction that Elliot Page received? I know I help pay, you know, the way, you know, for a lot of these things. Other people did too, but I know Ellen, you know, other people did and Caitlyn Jenner did. And I know that there was a lot of work by a lot of people that were done so, you know, to make coming out, whether you're coming out as gay, lesbian, or transgender, not as big a deal anymore. Uh -huh. And, you know, if that's my small contribution to gay history, I'll take it. And, you know, be proud of it because I can't tell you the, the letters and, and statements my clients got that, told them what a difference they made by coming out. Not just to them, but their parents and their families would see these people they know, and it made a difference to them. So I read a 2015 Advocate article, and they quoted your niece, who was actress Lizzie Kaplan. She referred to you as a power gay. Mm -hmm. Power gay. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that? I laugh. I never perceived myself as that. I no, no, I didn't. I never had that. Oh, I could call the head of this talent agency and then one move get that. I, I, my karma in life is whatever I got, I had to work for. And any power I had, I got through because I worked at it. I wasn't given anything. I didn't come from a wealthy family. I don't have the ability to push buttons when I try. It usually comes back in my face. So I don't think of myself as a publicist. I'm as a power gay. I'm very different. I know who the power gays are. I'm not that guy. I'm just not that guy. And I've never run with the power gay crowd. You know, just like I, I've always had my own group of friends who were not in the entertainment business. I've lived a lower key life. God, I go to bed at nine or nine 30 at night. I'm sorry. I'm boring, but, um, I love what I do. And 
I'm grateful for every minute. I'm blessed in so many, many, many ways. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the Sexual Heroes listeners that we haven't covered? I'm just grateful for the chance to tell my story. I'm extremely proud of you and the forum you've created because no matter who we are as gay men, our sex and our sexuality is what unites us. And I'm proud of being a gay man. I'm proud of being sexual. Proud of my own journey as a gay man and my own sexual journey. And I will never be ashamed of that. I will always be sex positive. And I'm glad you shine a light on that. You shine the light on so many people that need that, that otherwise wouldn't have that. And I'm honored and touched to be among among the people that you have chosen to highlight. So thank you. Thank you. I think perhaps that You know, we're all heroes in some way. If you're in the LGBTQIA plus community, because we have, we're living in a heterosexual world and, and it's not easy. Yeah, not easy. We're, we're all heroes, but how you are the hero of heroes because you have helped for helping so many other people become visible and allowing them to to be who they are and it is the most important thing that you can can do in your life is to be be who you are thank you thank you thank you howard thanks season seven podcast episodes are specially edited versions of in-person interviews available on my youtube channel links for the channel and my guest are included in the show notes All my links can be found at robertblack.one. Thanks for listening.